Good evening, everyone, and welcome to ACCA. I'm Jessie Bullivant, um, Curator of Public Programs, and I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Boon the traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land on which we meet today, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and extend my respects to their elders, past, present, and future. ACCA's current exhibition, Greater Together, presents eight projects that complicate individual notions of authorship to focus on the idea of collaboration and cooperation as a means of solidarity in a period of uncertainty. Contemporary societal divisions, political, environmental, um, cultural and geographic, are creating a real need to share knowledge and resources and to reassess ideas of production and organisation, professionally, socially and artistically. The notion of a community centre is expanded in Field Theory's newly commissioned work, Final, Final Visions, Bunker, which has imagined ACCA as the ultimate bunker in which to shelter from the apocalypse. Fortnightly on Saturdays, Field Theory are inviting representatives of niche members clubs, including ex-military survivalists, Aikido practitioners and amateur radio clubs, to host skill-sharing survivalist sessions within their bunker. Tonight we're joined by Jason, Anna and Lara of Field Theory. Field Theory is the collective name of a group of six predominantly Melbourne-based artists who, through a combined background in both visual and performing arts, have established a practice of making, performing, curating and producing that responds to the unique conditions and specific times, places and communities. Please join me in welcoming them. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks so much for coming down. I just noticed that the weather has completely turned, so maybe we lost a few people on the way. Um, welcome to the bunker. We kind of think of the whole of Acker as our big rusty bunker, and I'm just going to take it for granted that you guys have seen the room at the back. Yes? No? Most people have? No? Okay, well, most people have. It looks a bit have. like we'll that. Have, it lo kind of looks like that. Pop down later. Um, so what we're going to do is kind of talk a little bit about what field theory is, how we work, how we arrived at doing this, where this is going, because we see this project as uh, something of a process that's, that's probably going to branch off and head into different iterations at different times and places. And then we'll talk a bit about the work that sort of led into this one and the modes that we operate in. Um, as Jesse mentioned, field theory is a curious beast in that we have six active members, um, all of which come from slightly different backgrounds and practices. So what we do can't really, it doesn't, it's not one thing. We, we produce, curate, perform, make stuff, write, and facilitate interactions and things within the sector as well that we work in. So we kind of don't see what we do as one thing or another, it's simply a response to an invitation, whether it's a site or a community. It is also a lot of following leads and research, so we have ongoing kind of investigations that various members are engaged in, and they throw up 
something that becomes an event. We don't all work on everything, although that is the ultimate objective and some of the recent projects we have all worked on. Um, so predominantly on, on, on Final Visions and on a lot of projects we'll have two people at a time working on them. So there'll be a, a couple of lead artists and then we bring the rest of the collective on board as the work is made or as it's performed and realised wherever it is. Um, we also do quite a long development period before each project, sometimes years, uh, for the stuff we're making. Um, some of our members are in interstate. We all have solo practices as well. So we juggle blocking in time to work on field theory things alongside everything else. Um, we have a, a curious couple of, I guess, core rules or principles in field theory which characterise a lot of what we do and one of the questions we always ask before a project is, is this, is this going to be fun? Because it's supposed to be and um, is this doing something that we haven't done before? Is it going to take us somewhere we haven't gone before? Um, the other one is if you're not at the meeting you can't make a decision. And that's because we have no formal roles within the collective, it's the only way we get stuff done. So to give you a bit of um, background about Bunker, um, Final Visions is a kind of a loose bracket term that we've come up with to loosely gather together a set of sort of investigations and, and research into current kind of anxieties and how people are manifesting them. And our access points for, for people has, in, in this case, has been special interest clubs around Melbourne. So when we started thinking about this project and, and, and considering, well, you know, it began actually as this idea to create this tableau vivant with multiple people from different clubs doing these frozen scenes, enacting insane visions of the apocalypse. So if you can imagine like, chainsaw carvers carving mushroom clouds out of timber and then members of the furry society digging holes in the ground with their fake claws whilst maybe the metal detector club scanned for metal. And the, so they, they were just these kind of wild ideas about what could we do and why would we do that with a collection of people. And then when we actually started making contact with various groups what happened was um, it turns out that as soon as you push the anxiety button these days, you get a torrent of information from people about plans they're making. And not only plans they're making, but ways in which they're thinking that are different from what they were thinking about and, and stuff that they're, they're planning to plans for their family, how they're organising themselves, plans for their social group, they're building things under their houses. There's, it just opened up this huge can of worms for us um, about, okay, what do we do with a lot of this information and people who we're meeting? And it really prompted us to kind of go, um, what are we doing as a collective? And what would we do? So in, in field theory, we approach things with quite a comic uh, approach, so the stupidity of six artists trying to survive in an art gallery is 
ridiculous. And in the past, with projects which we'll talk about, we've um, we have kind of put ourselves in, in in situations where we have to kind of make do with what's there and 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 intensely deal with each other for durations and. It kind of thought, well, what would it mean for us to actually research uh, the idea of a bunker and then gather what we need together, put people in it? So possibly where this project might go is possibly somewhere towards actually putting us in a bunker somewhere. Anyway, the, um, the process that we have engaged with here is... Um, Everything in the, in the racks was either donated by a club or follows the Prepper's Guide to Bunker Survival. So we've contacted, at the moment, maybe 12 special interest groups ranging from anybody we think might have a specific skill that's useful for us to learn, and we're considering it as a way to, for people to teach us. So in teaching us, we make that public and people can come and share that knowledge, whatever it is. So in the case of the last two workshops we've run, we had two survivalists from a, a group out in Frankston and Dandenong who are building a 67-ring container survival compound. And uh, they came down and gave us some basic bug-out tips. We had, um, that's Sean and Jason, uh, these guys basically have committed their, this is a, a lifestyle for them. They consider their prepping and their extended family, they even call it a family, and it's a group of about 100 of them. They function online, but they meet up every month and share and gather skills. So this compound they're planning is to house this 100 people within their group. We contacted a indigenous plant specialist to come down and educate us about what is available around here. And the funny thing about art galleries is that because you have only a few exits and no windows, they actually make quite a lot of sense. So if you were to kind of block off here and the exit at the back, you have a fairly sealed bunker. There's only like defendable window slits. So when it all Jason's goes down. taking the apocalypse much more seriously <laughs> now than he did before we started this research. It, I do actually have a plan now. Um, so th these workshops are kind of um, skill sharing. They are on a, on a kind of, uh, I guess you call it, social level. They're connecting people who otherwise don't connect. And I guess the... The, the, the clubs themselves actually function as a kind of microcosm of the politics that occur in broader society. So within a club culture, as many of you probably know, that the, they are fairly intense as people try to organise themselves. So what we're curious about, as much as the skills, is also how do these clubs function. So last Saturday we had members of the... Hand Weavers and Spinners Guild come down who taught us how to um, cut your trousers in a loop and then bind it into a rope that you can use to carry a body. And um, <laughs> the, they were accompanied by 
a military, ex-military survivalist from Kyneton who came down in his armoured Humvee and showed us his bug-out equipment inside there and he brought down a nuclear biological attack suit which he donated to the bunker. Um, next week we have the Anarchist Collective and the Northern Suburbs Amateur Radio crew who are coming down to get on the roof to teach us how to use the antenna to and the short band radio to contact people in an emergency. Without um, electricity. Without electricity, yeah, with batteries. Um, I guess we, well, what we'll do is we'll come back to the sort of broader questions around the context of why we do what we do after we've given you a little bit of background about the modes in which we make work. So we'll skip back, because field theory, we, we kind of jump from producing, I guess you call it like a, we provide for artists sort of, um, I guess you call it like 360 degree support for making projects. So if you have an idea that you want to realize in a um, unusual site, we would help people to gain access to the site, get funding, give them full technical support, dramaturgical support. So we're doing things like that alongside actually making projects together. And the two kind of become blurry. So I'm going to hand over to Lara, who's going to tell you about a project we did in 2014. Um, this was actually a collaboration between Lara and I, but it was part of the CIDR SET program, which was a three-year program where we commissioned four new works live performance works in unusual sites in Melbourne, so four each year for three years. So this is 2014. Um, and the site here was um, the Exhibition Hall, where we um, got invited to make work for the Melbourne Art Fair. And the Art Fair was an interesting place for us to make work because don't think anyone in the collective has ever sold a single artwork in their entire <laughs> life. But, um, oh, sorry, Jason has. Jason's the real artist in the collective. Um, but what we looked at is what happened in that building on other weekends. And a lot of what goes on in there is expos. And um, these are kind of communities, kind of corporate houses for selling very particular things and Jason and I for about 12 months went to as many expos as we could including um, the dog expo, the um, wool and quilting expo, the tattoo expo, um, the antiques muscle fair, muscle cars. It's kind of like anything that is sellable or brings a community together has its own expo. And most people that um, have tables at the expo are quite eccentric and wonderful. <laughs> um, of course, there's different versions of expos. There's like ones that definitely feel more corporate than others, but... Um, we got to meet a whole range of stall holders that got um, quite unique stalls. So from the 
mind, body, spirit uh, fair, we had the AstroScan 2000, which had been going for over 20 years to tell you your fortune and your future for a very sort of 80s style of machine. Um, this was our friends from the Tattoo Expo and the Antique Expo next to each other. So essentially we invited um, six of these storeholders to participate in the art fair and do what they normally do at their own expos without much um, curatorial or aesthetic kind of interruption. We just got to meet them, found them to be incredibly intriguing and interesting people that were definitely doing what they do, not for financial purposes, but because of the community that builds around their particular special interest. So that's Prudence Mapstone, who is a legend in the knitting world. And we didn't realise this <laughs> until we, we found her at the um, Quilting Expo, and she um, has groupies. Mm. So when we curated the Meta Expo, people turned up, found out that she was here and queued up to, to come and see her. She, she her. invented something called the scrumble, which <laughs> is like a beautiful little bunch of felty wool. And she's, she's released a book called The Book of a Thousand Scrumbles. Um, and, you know, even just her to meet the, the sort of young queer 20-year-old comic book nerds next next to her and then the wonderful Anton who just loved French antiques next to um, uh, this guy, I've forgotten his name now, but he was so gentle and gorgeous and not at all scary, but every, everyone that came from the art fair was just like, what's going on? We weren't allowed to tattoo on real people, so he had to bring in his disembodied arms. I think that's one of the reasons that was a bit creepy. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so basically this invitation was to not try and necessarily... We were present, but we tried to be quite invisible and not explain who these people were or why they were at an art fair, just to let people um, kind of consider what art might be and what performance might be and what responding to this site might be and many people were there to kind of purchase a painting and found this um, installation or this performance work to be very, uh, I guess, uncomfortable or um, too unusual to even kind of engage in, which was fine, but like it was also probably one of the most visited artworks we've ever made because so many people come to the art fair, so tens of thousands of people went through this. And I think the most engaging part of it was that the um, storeholders had a, had a really good time. They didn't, like we paid them, but they didn't feel like they were there being sort of laughed at. They were kind of genuinely engaging with each other and asking and answering quite a lot of questions from visitors about their very special interests. There were, there were a couple of, um, like, people would come through and 
one of the common responses were, um, they're doing a fabulous job, those actors. <laughs> so there was, the, because everything, it, it appeared to be a setup, the, um, and the expectation was that this was all manufactured. So, but they weren't doing the, the we selected the uh, people in the show based on their shtick, so they all had a, a sort of certain confident performance about what they did and the way they engaged with people. And that's why we talked to them and asked them to be part of the project. So when the public came through here, they were just doing what they normally do and they were trading in the way they would in their normal expos, um, which I guess out of context heightens the performative qualities of what they do already. So that's what kind of what we were interested in is what does it mean to just shift the juxtaposition of who they're with and the location to kind of really explore what it is about that culture and that subculture and the mode of the way they talk and the way they interact, sell things, that was interesting. Um, to jump back to actually same year as this one, um, this is an example of uh, a, what we call our kind of gonzo shaggy dog performance journalism model, <laughs> where, where we kind of immerse ourselves in a, in a place and a community and let it run. And this was sort of the first time we'd really done it in a deep way, and it was um, as a response to the Christchurch earthquakes in New Zealand um, in 2011, and um, I don't know if anybody is a New Zealander here, I'm an ex-New Zealander, so I lived in Christchurch, was born there, and um, we were kind of going back and forth to Christchurch because there was an explosion of sort of um, grassroots responsive work which broke down a lot of discipline barriers, and at the time field theory was doing a lot of uh, interviewing and posting of interesting work online that we'd seen that wasn't happening in theatres and galleries. Um, and so we saw a lot of this work going on in Christchurch. So we were going back and forth, and we just thought oh, it seemed kind of natural to make a project there at some stage. So one of the few things on the skyline that you could still see after a lot of the inner city was levelled was AMI Stadium, which is the equivalent to, I guess, the MCG in Melbourne, it's got a, like a 150-year history in, in New Zealand, in Christchurch, and it's the home of rugby. It's, it was the only stadium where you could have a major concert. The Pope visited there. I mean, historically, it's, it's like a 40,000-seater stadium or more. Side of the Springbrook riots, and now it was, it was just abandoned. And no one had been in there since 2011. They just closed the gates. They knocked down the stand. And it was just sitting in limbo. So for two years, we were going back and forth to Christchurch and talking, to, trying to get into the stadium, saying we'd love to use, do something in this building. And I guess it's like a, um, it's a classic example of what, what excites us as a group as well, is getting... Um, learning how to talk to people who we haven't otherwise encountered before, learning the language of whatever it is we're dealing with and, and navigating a way that artistically we can sort of intersect with that site and that community. So 
this was a case of just getting no, no, no over and over again until we got a maybe. And then based on that maybe, we managed to convince the council to open the gates for us for 72 hours. And they let us go in there and said, okay, you can, you can go onto the field for 72 hours. So we decided to make this a public uh, invitation and extend this because this, if you imagine a, 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 a site of such historical significance for a city which has such a lot of um, emotional investment and memories in it for people, not just of sporting kind, but you know, musical, religious, social, just so many kind of, it, it integrated so significantly into the community that, and it just wasn't there. So what do you do with all that stuff? Do you just leave it? Do you just shut the door and walk away from it? So I think is the most important thing when it comes to this version of, um, I guess, radio, yeah. which is that uh, not, not one voice was more important than another and not one, in fact, the more absurd the detail we could find, probably the more we emphasised and underlined it. So as someone that kind of hates sport, I really just talked a lot about the turf, the grass. Um, <laughs> we had some experts come in to look at the grass, talked a lot about the um, things that were sold, the food there, the concerts. We had a lot of, like, women who were obsessed with Bon Jovi come down and relive those moments uh, for that concert. And the only th music that we would play during this broadcast was music from the concerts that had been there. That was one of my favourite things. So I wasn't able to go to New Zealand because I was eight and a half months pregnant at the time. So I had to sit in Melbourne and listen to them accidentally play four tracks o over the top of each other at once. It was one of my favourite things within the first hour, just listening to like a Bon Jovi U2 mashup. Very funny. And this was, it was non-stop, so we didn't sleep really for 72 hours. So it's, it's, it's non-stop radio. So our, our investment in decay and the performance of that uh, was really important because we wanted to do something which really engaged with the, um, the physical endurance of the site. And so putting, putting ourselves, just talk non-stop for 72 hours and see if you can do it was really important. So people were just rolling through and we would feed content into the caravan. So if somebody was um, found someone interesting outside and said, do you want to come on air, they would just roll in. So you're constantly wrong-footed all the time with, and I guess this, this juxtaposition again ties back to a lot of the stuff we do, which is we're very interested in, in having to deal with things that don't necessarily appear to fit together. So you will be in the middle of a discussion about the Pope's visit and all of a sudden somebody's telling you about that they were married on the field and their father's ashes are scattered there. And the, the sort of movement from a totally banal conversation to a very emotional one, to a very frivolous one, to a very funny one. So it's... Um, but I think that's one of the things that we do and we focus on, and I think you were talking before about how we like to focus on or have a sense of humour in our work, but I think it's also that absurdity of the, of the everyday, the real life, the real people that we really enjoy tapping into. So it's also, um, it's, it's real absurd nonsense. Yeah, I'll just play you a clip from, this is um, Jackson having a breakdown at like four in the morning or something as his shift comes off. 
But it gives you the sort of tone. <laughs> Intimately? Yeah. Deeply? Madly, truly, deeply? I don't know about madly, truly, deeply, but there is some form of intimacy that's un- unexpected. Yeah. Do you need to be alone right now? Uh, well, I will be yeah, for the next <laughs> however many hours till I'm on again at 1pm. 1, 1 yeah. But yeah, in, a, in an unexpected way. I never thought I'd really care about it. But I'm starting you can to. you can tune in later to Jacko while he's found just rambling and drifting <laughs> through the stadium. Yeah. Right. <laughs> drifting and rambling. You can't leave me here. You've got to put me on the plane to get back. I've got to fly Monday. It's a hard shift. This. Yeah, it's all right, mate. Come on, let's go. Four a.m. shift is not easy, is it, Jacko? Mate, he's in hysterics. He's delirious. I'm not leaving. <laughs> I'm going to chain myself to this desk. Yeah, yeah. We've got a protest Come for on, one buddy. of the members of Field just, Theory. Just reach out. Take my hand. You'll be all right, mate. Come on. Come on. I've been pulled away from the desk. It's time for you to go. You've done, a, you've done a great job, buddy. Congratulations. Take your, take your little laptop, take your special little Christchurch beanie, and you pop out of here, right? Holy fuck! It's time to let go, mate. It's time to move out of the caravan. Good morning, Christchurch. I can see why you love this stadium. Or you loved, or still do love. It's really. Jacko's getting intimate. He just kissed the microphone. I'm not sure if it was a kiss out to you. Um, so that's like after performing for 72 hours, what can happen? Um, <laughs> so that kind of endurance body art almost is another layer to the work, which often doesn't necessarily mash with community engagement and um, luckily for us even when we were in delirious states we managed to have a lot of um, respect and support from the people that we were interviewing and to hold it together enough that it didn't feel like it was a total farce even (laughs) despite what that just sounded like. (laughs) Um, And then our next piece is very sort of similar except we decided to do it for six days straight um, at the Queen Victoria Market and again not leave the site the entire time, only eat, dress and wash at the site and um, again broadcast non-stop the entire time live. So there really wasn't any room for um, time out and the market itself was just kind of something we were all familiar with but really didn't know anything about and got to kind of get right in there with the cycle of that week. So It was six, six days because that's the 6.25 days is the cycle of the market before it goes back to the beginning. So something different is happening in the market across that six day. So we wanted to encompass the entire possible scope of trying to talk about absolutely everything and to everyone at the market. So I guess the approach we often take is this maximalist sort of 
openness, and then we try to mediate that content somehow uh, as best we can and make that mediation the, the, the sort of uh, the performative... I don't know, it's, it's sort of endurance, but it is also... Um, it's, it's looking for how to kind of juxtapose and cut between things, but at the same time, we, as field theory, become the, the narrative arc that threads all the chaos together. So... Yeah, we're not pretending to be anyone other than ourselves, and um, sometimes that reveals quite a lot about <laughs> us as individuals, especially in delirious states when we're amongst people we know so well and then realise it's all actually live and... You know, with the New Zealand broadcast that was getting uh, thousands of people actually listening to it and we didn't know because we weren't checking our um, dial, our statistics or whatever and especially in Australia with the time difference when we were kind of just gossiping at, at 3am it was kind of much earlier in Australia and people were, were on a different steam to us and, and listening to all of the breakdowns. So, it was quite intriguing and then... Um, Another reason we chose to go for 6.25 days is because the Queen Vic market is built on a graveyard that is estimated to hold about 9,000 bodies underneath still. So that 9,000 minutes was the kind of rule we gave ourselves to stick around for and go into that quite dark history and also the sort of ridiculousness of some of the everyday rituals that happen there. It's also worth pointing out we got a couple of extra people in to help so we didn't totally yeah, lose it. Eight of us. Um, we also responded, we, but a lot of these projects obviously have a visual, you come to us and you come to the site and then there's a dispersed sort of much broader audience with the radio. Um, so, and then there is an online exchange as well. So there's sort of, it's creating channels for that information to flow back and forth as well. So in this case, we responded to the availability of the, and the aesthetic of the, the potato, or rather the just produce boxes, and this sort of rather chaotic makeshift idea of mobile audio. So we, we built a, um, I, I recycled all the boxes from the, that were ch being chucked out and reformed them into speaker boxes, which went around a portable building which became our broadcast hub and unfortunately it coincided with the shittiest weather <laughs> week of <laughs> that entire year and high winds so we had to strap down the whole week was just like this memory of like sailing a crap ship that you were trying to keep the sails up on and it was <laughs> looking particularly saggy by the end but the, you get the aesthetic kind of it's a sort of saturated market collision of a whole lot of styles and and things all around this idea of audio and but it worked as a as a visual hub for things we slept in a um above a pet shop in a kind of warehouse at the back up there when i said slept that was like two hours <laughs> two hour stretch and then you'd be back on air or you were producing talking to people in the market and collecting and the other crazy thing that was happening was a council election and a huge, uh, very controversial redevelopment proposal of the market, which basically is introducing a whole lot of kind of gentrification and a, a lot. there's a lot of fear from storeholders about um, getting moved on. 
So the, um, this really hang, hung throughout the broadcast, this question of how is the market going to change in the next year when this proposal does happen. I guess the um, we should we should talk a little bit about the stuff we do for other artists as well because I think it gives a con context for why we like to work in weird places and the challenge of of what that throws up. So I'll just quickly show you a bit of footage of um, this is f a little bit of. The, the document from 2015 CIDASET program, which is for live work. So in this year, we engaged with uh, Zoe Scolio, who made a piece called Mass and um, called Park Raceway. So I don't know if anybody came out to that. So it was um, 300 vehicles and, and on this motocross site and the raceway. we. Uh, Jackson, who's part of the collective, made a work where he collaborated with four young performers and made this sort of anarchic dance performance that looked at child children who are child stars and things in, in the dance community. And then he, we entered it into a legitimate dance competition in the suburbs. And then we bussed the audience to the dance competition. And this was presented as part of the sequence of things. And then uh, another piece was Matt Prest did a piece where he ran to the top of the um, Eureka Tower, which is a thing, running upstairs of skyscrapers. And at the top, and I thought it would be like, we'd be up there. So we were all in, the audience were waiting upstairs in a lounge at the top of the building. And the idea was that he would, he wore a GoPro and things, and he ran up the stairs and then while he was breathless, he came straight into the room, took a microphone and delivered a lecture on skyscrapers. Um, and I thought it would be like 20 minutes or something. He did it in like nine minutes or something like that. It was just phenomenal. 83 um, levels. But very funny work, really interesting. Um, and then Mish Grigger, who was a guest performer on 9,000 Minutes, did a piece called The Talk in Lara's Lounge Room. So a real combination of accessing sites and draw, getting an audience to engage with completely different um, things, but you get a sense of it from the... soundscape into people's cars and then they left the cars with um, headphones and uh, explored the site in quite a kind of ceremonial and um, ge 
had a quite uh, geographical kind of connection to the uh, the moon rising and the sun setting. It was it was very specific to it to the time and day, and it would have been like all those things. There was like cloud cover just coming over when the moon, but it was quite phenomenal just to, to get the sense you were standing on the rim and watching the sun go down on one side, and then you know half an hour later the moon came up on the other side. So a, a full moon. It was a beautiful work. And there was literally the audience, and then a kilometre away you were watching the performance of Cars and that was quite a striking scale to work in and probably slightly beyond our means as like a very small collective trying to get to. <laughs> yeah and also you know we only had one shot at it so um, <laughs> it was one of those things where you know what you could have done better the yeah. day the day after but it, did, it won a Green Worm Award which was you know so it worked should we do questions? Yeah. Uh, I have a roving mic, so uh, it's a good time to open up to the audience. But maybe I have a question first. I'm just wondering how field theory uh, met or began, and if there are uh, X's or <laughs> if there are future, um, yeah. It is an extended members, family, yeah. yeah, definitely. There is, um, so we started working together and we actually met because uh, we're in about 2009 um, and we met rather informally because uh, a lot of us were experiencing this sort of uh, no man's land where you, if you made work which you weren't really interested in the containment of a, of a gallery space and you were not sort of a similar type of containment of a festival which brackets exactly how your work is engaged with and the channels by which audiences approach it and all those things. If you wanted to sort of explore or control what those entry points are in an expanded sense or you do a piece of work over a long period of time, um, I think we were all experiencing these ch the challenges of making work in Australia at, the, at that time of that nature and we came together to first and foremost just to, to share kind of what we were doing and as a result of that it, um, over a year or so it became quickly apparent that everyone was really interested in actually providing something for other artists and, and not just ourselves so we set up it was just before the crowdfunding boom happened so we set up a kind of subscription model where 200 subscribers gave 100 bucks for a year and we commissioned four works and gave those funds directly to an artist to make a work and to utilise the, um, the resources of that subscriber group. So they had this direct relationship to a community, uh, a context for the work and some seed funding. Um, and, and that model kind of, we did that for a few years and it sort of extended into a lot more sort of advocacy and as a result of the admin, I guess, we were doing and, and that kind of role we haven't really ever stopped doing that. It's always, it's, I guess it's it's kind of ex extended into side as set and, and this idea that um, if you're making work in an unusual context, the challenges of producing that, as, as a collective of artists, you're actually quite nimble and effective and often more effective than larger institutions who have to go through a lot more bureaucracy to, to engage sites and things and make things happen. So, um, 
I guess we're interested also in the relationship of, you know, the, us as artists, uh, not, not positioning ourselves as makers all the time, not as the authorship and a lot of our work is quite blurry. Um, there's a lot of dialogue that goes on. There's a lot of evolution in the work. It's very textured and open, I guess. So it feels like the production side of things is a natural extension of those interests as well. So um, I've forgotten what the question um, is. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have members that have kind of a couple of members that have dropped off but stay engaged as audiences. <laughs> Associate. Um, Sarah Odegari, who's based in Sydney, you know, isn't obviously as present in these Melbourne-based works. Um, but, yeah, I think we are fairly fluid in terms of how things come and go and a lot of the time we realise the constraints of resources and everyone's lives in terms of taking on projects. So if you've got a job, you've got a job and you can't do the next project, then that makes total sense and you step out and, some, and you just trust your collaborators will do a good job kind of in your name, which isn't always the simplest thing. Um, so that's like something I think we all have like learnt about and really value in each other that we can kind of make work without the whole collective being equally part of it. Great, it's so interesting, um, such an interesting model um, to hear from. Uh, does anyone have any brewing questions? Yes. <laughs> Um, thanks for the talk. Uh, I uh, watching your um, displays. Obviously, a lot of your work involves communication with communities that wouldn't necessarily ever be connected with uh, the art community. And I, 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 uh, I can definitely hear that you have a level of respect when you're dealing with these. But I. I assume that you must often encounter situations where those communities look on you and sense that they, they, you might be mocking them uh, and how you address that. We, we walk that line all the time and I think the, um, one of the, there is no sense of, we don't approach it as a sense of mockery, we're not interested in mocking people, we're not. Um, but we are interested in providing a platform that has the potential for great levity. So where we seek the comedy in the work, but that is what is interesting about uh, creating a, a platform for people where we don't often talk about it as art at all. So and, and because it, often they're in unusual sites, it's not relevant to even engage in that discussion. It's it's the exchange that's happening, whether it's on radio or just talking or whatever and the um i guess the, the greatest uh for us that one of the techniques that that is most profound is your investment in where you are and what you're doing there's no positioning of what we're doing in a way that is um anything but an invitation so and that invitation is not uh we don't seek to contort or or we just 
seek to kind of encourage people to kind of access and use that platform and then let the things that sit next to each other sit next to each other in a way which can allow for something very funny to be an ironic, to be up against something deeply sad or earnest or... Um, it's a fine balance and it's really hard to keep that space open. Um, I mean, there's been so many occasions where you're talking to someone and they're telling you something which is just ridiculous and you... you but it, I guess it's also just that you, you, you're putting... You are in this situation too, so... And doing something more ridiculous. And doing... Yeah, exactly. I think, it's I think we often use the words, what is my life? It is. <laughs> like, we, we also consider... Yeah, it's like nonsense. We work in the nonsense industry. But, I mean, the but that's also very real. So that's the kind of tension that we enjoy walking, that that's, that's yeah. the thing being explored. Yeah. And highlighting that tension, I think, is great in work because pretending that every time you engage with someone that's not an artist is a transformative experience for them is bullshit. Like, <laughs> you've got to actually go, okay, this is probably weird or annoying for you. Tell me about how annoying it is. We'd love to talk about that. Um, and I guess it's just, yeah, giving that space and time in, inside a work so you can be responsive to questioning or negative or tense um, yeah. forms of collaboration which are just as powerful as the like positive fun hilarious ones like there's a lot, there's a lot of risk in the work absolutely so that the, and the, there's a risk of potentially just derailing and I guess the everybody in field theory is a little bit of a risk junkie and that they are, really want to put themselves in situations where it is right on the line of where is this going? I don't know. This is... I'm doing my best here and, and we're trying to make it work. But there's also kind of... Um, there's, a, there's a great playfulness and I think people um, respond a lot to your sense of play and in the work. So it's a, it's a great way to get people on board with things. Did we have another... Question over this side. And is this current work a more of a departure from perhaps that playfulness or that, that Aussie Australianness? Or you, are you conscious as a field theory of saying, is this Aussie? Are we I, I, as, an, as not an Australian, yeah. I, th I think it is quite Australian, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I, I've always thought that Australians are really good at taking the piss out of themselves. But um, whether that is a broader kind of thing that the rest of the group recognise us, I, I don't know, but the, um, how can you put it, the, the tone of the work is, I guess, lots of, I mean, to, to kind of, you can get away with an awful lot inside here, you, you really can, and you, it, it's sort of fascinating to just take away the layers of what the, the license you're given within a, within an art space and actually just risk what it means to do that activity in a dialogue with someone who doesn't give a shit. And, and where do you meet in the middle there? And I think you quickly learn that a sense of sort of self-reflexiveness is essential and that self-reflexiveness is at times deeply lacerating and quite mocking of ourselves but also, because you're so invested, it's like, we're fucking serious. We are going there. We're sleeping there. We're talking. We're putting ourselves in these situations. We're apocalypse so, ready. Yeah. So it's sort of, 
looking for that line, I guess. Yeah. And not posing ourselves as the experts, like actually just trying to really learn from the people that we invite into a work and, and take lead from them. So the workshops that have been happening on the Saturdays are not us telling you about how to do things. It's these other very um, committed people and us being the uh, background to help support them. Yeah. Um, I think just on that, I found it really interesting uh, in the first survival session, the way that the presenters became the audience to each other. And I think that idea of audience is really interesting in your practice that um, there's this really yeah, blurring of authorship and audience and viewer. Um. Yeah. The, works, the meaning of the work is negotiated. And I guess that is the... Um for us, a, a pretty key kind of idea is that there, at times we're the audience as much as anybody else and, and that permeability and, 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 and keeping those channels and how you actually maintain form within a work or a structure that can adapt and change and morph over time and hold itself together. And when does it fall down? When does it have its gold moments? When is it really working? I guess all those questions are pretty interesting for us. Um, uh, yeah, on that kind of thread as well, I was just um, interested in how long you've been going for, and I guess uh, this question about your individual practices versus the collective practices uh, that you have, because as an artist you're often, um, I guess, sort of turning time and labour into works that become an archive or an identity, an authorial identity or a brand that you know, um, a collective practice is seeming to go in a different relationship with that. You're trying to disperse that sort of quite self-consciously, it seems. But the, I, I guess I'm interested in um, how you felt like that, the, the um, distinction between your individual practices and field theories practice has evolved over time from, you know, from when you started to, to, to now. I mean, the, the, I'm, I'm probably a different person within the collective because I don't come from a theatre background, so I'm much more from the visual art world. Um, most of us have a, have a sort of collaborative, the, the, the nature of the work they were making alongside and before field theory was collaborative. For me, I, I actively wanted to kind of learn how to make better work with people. So. Um, there is always a bit of a tension, I think, but I, what, one of the things we're interested in doing in field theory is if someone needs to step back a little bit and, and really focus on something they need to do as an individual work, how can field theory actually support as the producer, maybe, for so the rest of the collective could form the production crew for that work. So within each of the frames we've used, um, there have been opportunities for each member to, to make a work, a solo, sometimes multiple people work. Um, we, it's a bit of a struggle because it's, um, the more projects we do now, the harder it is to juggle the time to do solo or whatever it is that everybody else does. So it's probably also fair to say that working as a collective of six people, it's not a huge money spinner on an individual basis. So sometimes we have to take a step out for practical reasons as well. 
Yeah, especially in a uh, visual arts context, which I work between visual arts and performing arts, and there isn't this recognition recognition of individuals within the collective um, in the same way that there is in the performing arts. So you would, uh, if you worked with a performing arts institution, get a individual fee if you were part of a group work, whereas in visual arts you get a group fee and that's usually the same as a solo fee um which is interesting like i don't think anyone's in field theory to get artist fees but it certainly <laughs> um it certainly needs i feel to evolve a little bit as live work and collaborative work becomes more and more curated into our institutions um methods for really resourcing that and finding ways to, um, yeah, help collectives not completely burn out because it is um, Valuing time, I think, is, is a really, you know, like the theatre world, you do developments and you get paid for your time. You, that just does not happen in the visual arts. So, I mean, we're very lucky because we've sort of traverse so many sectors we we receive funding across a whole lot of different art forms but also social you know state government local body kind of funding so the nature of the projects uh, allow for that flexibility but um, it's always a navigation isn't it it's just a yeah do we have another question yeah. um Firstly, uh, thank you for taking the time to talk. Um, have there been any unrealized projects or sites that have been like particularly painstaking, <laughs> you know, the struggle to try to secure permission or realize a project? So interesting you ask. Um, the last project we planned to do was at a really amazing 24-hour institutional cafe called Cafe Romantica in uh, Brunswick. And we had made that work up until the point that we had um, postcards printed and were about to go live and had hired our equipment. It was very similar to the market and um, stadium projects, but the reality of that project was the owners of the cafe were a very tight-knit family that had a family illness around the time that we wanted to do our production and so we decided to postpone it and then um, a week later they decided to close the site and it's a site that's been around for 30 years and we'd done a huge amount of kind of research and investigation into and we were going to live there, eat there, not sleep there and just um, kind of talk until we couldn't talk any longer about issues of that area including gentrification which is partly the, one of the reasons they close is not being able to pay the rent and so um, the kind of classic family-run Italian cafe, 24 hours, like there's very few 24-hour places in Melbourne like that. Um, it was really sad. So we're working on a way to shift that project again into something that's a bit of a commemoration 
uh, or eulogy of and a public artwork. We have some of their um, amazing signage to share with the world, so <laughs> we'll um, keep you updated. <laughs> Thank you. Did we have any other questions from the crowd? wondering um, about the um, Melbourne Art Fair work. So how did you get, how, how, how did that happen that you were in the Melbourne Art Fair? Was that with a gallery or? That was, um, again, like a, like a lot of our projects, we, we have something that we're researching and then the confluence of various invitations or funding comes together. So in that case, it was an invitation to be part of a something that Jacqueline Doherty was curating called Social Capital. And so she was asked by um, the Art Fair Foundation to commission a series of works. So she approached us and Lara and I had already begun talking to um, the, the stall holders and were thinking of actually putting our Meta Expo in as a performance by itself inside the, the uh, Melbourne Exhibition Building. And the idea of then putting this expo back inside another expo just was too perfect to be true. So that was just really good luck in that yeah. case. Cool, thanks. Uh, we might leave it there. So please join me uh, in thanking um, Jason, Anna and Lara from Field Theory. And yeah. <laughs> Uh, and please come back to join us next week when we'll be joined by Debris Facility Proprietary Limited, who will talk about their project uh, for workshop uh, next Thursday evening. And please also grab a public programs flyer for more information about the upcoming survival sessions or follow us on um, social media for updates. Great. Thank you. <laughs>